Welcome to Conversations with the Marketplace, brought to you by the passionate practitioner consultants of Warbird Consulting Partners. Our conversations with the marketplace are designed to provide access to innovative and entrepreneurial financial leaders from across the country. We hope that by listening to their experiences, you might take away a few items that can shorten the learning curve, be easily implemented, and facilitate financial improvement at your organization. Our goal is to educate, entertain, offer new perspectives, and inspire you to take action. Without further delay, welcome to the conversation. Good afternoon. And welcome to this special presentation brought to you by the Financial Advisory and Debt Management Practice Group at Warbird Consulting Partners. My name is Jim Gravel, and as a director and senior CFO consultant with Warbird Consulting Partners, I would like to thank each of you for participating in this presentation on debt management in a crisis. We want to thank you for trusting us with your most valuable resource, and that's your time. Our goal is to provide you with access to innovative and entrepreneurial financial leaders from across the country. I wish I had had access to these resources in 2008 when the Great Recession caused challenges with our bond covenants and resulted in a technical default. It worked out okay, but it was a long and very painful process. It is our hope, my hope, that by listening to the experience of our panelists today, you might take away a few items that can shorten the learning curve, be easily implemented, and facilitate financial improvement at your organization. Warbird Consulting Partners is composed of practitioner accountants. We've been in the trenches. Our team has decades of experience performing every function within the financial management of a hospital or health system. This seasoned experience allows us to relate to your concerns, to your opportunities, and to the frustrations that you as a hospital leader or team member might be experiencing. Warbird's Financial Advisory and Debt Management Practice Group has worked with hospitals of every type and every size. This diverse experience enables our practitioners to customize solutions, solutions that fit your culture, address your specific situation, and satisfy the various stakeholders. But before I get started, a couple of housekeeping items. The recording of today's webinar will be sent to each of you via email approximately an hour after the event's concluded. If you desire a copy of the slides, please request those using the chat function on the right-hand side of your screen. All of you listening in will be muted during the webinar. However, if you have questions, please submit them by the chat function, and we will ensure that our, your questions get answered by our panelists after the webinar. I am joined today by my colleague at Warbird, Ron Long. Ron will be the moderator for our question and answer portion of the panel discussion. The focus of this discussion is on a question that is on many healthcare financials leaders' minds today. And that question is, what are the best options to cope with financial distress at our hospitals caused by a pandemic or other outside events? Many of us, who spend our career in healthcare believe that a direct approach in communicating with the investor community is the best approach. This has been my experience during the 35 years in the industry and as a hospital and system CFO. One of the benefits we have at Warbird is working with hospital specialists across the country. And these skilled experts 
the ones of which you'll be listening to today, are committed to provide the best advice, counsel, and strategy to health care organizations to ensure their financial viability and your long-term growth. We are thrilled to speak with five such individuals today. First of all, I'd like to introduce Marcy Lash. She's from Investor Community. Marcy has been a vice president and municipal credit analyst with T. Rowe Price since 1989, focusing exclusively on not-for-profit hospital systems. She is responsible for $4.8 billion in asset under management, comprised of 150 separate healthcare credits across the rating spectrum. Welcome, Marcy. Next, I'd like to introduce David Cates. David is a partner and co-practice group leader of Chapman and Cutler's Public and Health Education Finance Department in Chicago. His practice is focused on tax exempt and taxable financing for nonprofit entities. He has worked as a bond counsel and several other related legal advisory roles. He's a graduate from the University of Washington School of Law. Welcome, David. I am pleased to introduce Gordon Gendler. He's with UMB Bank. Gordon is a senior vice president and workout specialist with the Corporate Trust Division of UMB. He is an attorney and has worked at Wells Fargo and with the law firm Dorsey Whitney in Minneapolis. Graduating from the Minnesota School of Law and the Michelin Hamlin School of Law. Welcome, Gordon. I would also like to introduce Ian Hamill. Ian is a member of the Mintz Levin Law Firm and part of their bankruptcy and restructuring team. He maintains a national restructuring practice where he represents indentured trustees, bondholders, note holders, and other sophisticated creditors. He is a graduate from Cornell. And finally, I would like to introduce Bob Yolen. Bob is a senior vice president and senior analyst with Franklin Templeton Municipal Bond Department. His responsibilities range from hospital credit analysis to ongoing surveillance of hospital-related transactions. He joined the company in 1989 and holds an MBA from Santa Clara University. Thank you. Welcome, Rob. We are indeed honored and privileged to have such a distinguished and experienced group on our panel today, each an expert in the field. Before I turn it over to Ron, I wanted to provide some details on a unique and exciting bonus for participating in this webinar today. Each of our experts sat down for an extended interview to expand in depth on many of the points you'll hear addressed today. These master class sessions are available upon request and are packed with insights, experience, and examples from each of our panelists. I've listened through them and they are very, very well done and very informative. At the conclusion of our conversation, I'll return with a few final comments and details on how you can get access to these master class sessions. But at this point, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Ron Long, for the commencement of our conversation today. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Jim. Let's begin the question and answer period with Marcy Lash from T. Rowe Price. Welcome, Marcy, and thank you for joining us today. The first question for you is, how do you think hospital executives, particularly financial executives, should view their roles with bondholders, especially institutional bondholders? Yes, thank you, Ron. I appreciate the opportunity to join this webinar today. So we as institutional bondholders see ourselves as long-term partners with all of the institutions in which we invest. T. Rowe Price, as many of our counterparts on the buy side, are not quick bond flippers, but we're generally long-term buy and hold investors. We typically buy 30-year bonds and we hold them until maturity or until they're called, in most cases, 
unless there's a compelling reason to sell the bonds or if we need to raise liquidity to meet redemptions in our funds. But as long-term holders, we really see our goals as completely aligned with those of the hospital. We would like to see the hospital succeed operationally and financially so that our investment can provide a good return to our investors. And of course, hospital management wants the facilities to succeed so that they can continue to provide quality healthcare services to their community. So towards the goal of building this partnership, we see frequent and thorough communication as absolutely vital. You know, I urge CEOs and CFOs to take our phone calls. And I would point out that we are definitely not looking for material non-public information. That would put us in a very difficult situation. But we really just want a better understanding of the hospital, its position in its market, its strategic plans, and things of that nature. Sometimes we're calling just to get a clarification on a specific number, and sometimes we just want to hear what you're thinking. But the more we understand your particular circumstances, the better investors we become and the more comfortable we are holding your bonds. And most likely you'll be back in the market at some point in the future and all other things being equal, we're more likely to participate in bond issues where we've had a good experience with management in the past than in those bonds where we haven't. Thank you very much. You've personally been through several difficult or tricky times in the past with hospitals. When a hospital or system is facing a technical or actual default, how do you view yourself in assisting toward a win-win situation? Yeah, so um, having worked for many years in a vast, vast range of healthcare credits from single-site hospitals to large multi-state systems and along the entire rating spectrum from AA to below investment grade and non-rated, you know, we've probably seen hospitals going through the same or very similar situations that the hospital in question is currently experiencing. And hopefully we can offer suggestions based on what we've seen others go through that might provide useful for the hospital that we're looking at. I have one example. Many years ago, there was a single state system. They had six hospitals, each of which was located in a very challenging market from both a payer perspective and a competitive perspective. And this hospital system was experiencing some financial stress. It appeared very likely that they would not be able to meet their rate covenant and that they would have to call in a consultant. And I, along with other bondholders, met with management prior to the actual rate covenant violation. We discussed what was going on with the system. And we had recommended a consultant that we had worked with in the past that it had success with a very similar situation where there was another healthcare system facing the same challenges. And what actually happened was that the hospital system we were talking to retained this consultant, and the result was a significant financial improvement over the next few quarters. So that was really a win-win situation because the hospital were, was able to improve its financial situation, and the bondholders were able to see an improvement in the value of our investment. Another example is a hospital that we've spoken to recently that was one of the few remaining small standalone facilities in a rapidly consolidating market. And we began to question the long-term viability of this hospital in this market. So we met with management, we met with several members of the board, and we opened a dialogue with them about considering some sort of partnership or affiliation with the larger systems in the area. And at this point, they have engaged in conversations and these conversations are ongoing. So these are just two examples of where 
our experience with other hospitals was able to provide input for hospitals that we're looking at now and that they could use those experiences to their advantage. Thank you for those examples. That's very helpful. As an individual that represents investors, what are your two or three basic and most important expectations in communications with a hospital approaching or during a financial crisis? We find it particularly important to be kept in the information loop when things are not going well. We certainly understand that the sector can face many, many pressures. When I started at T. Rowe Price in 1998, we were in the first full year of the Balanced Budget Act, which slashed Medicare payments to hospitals and had a disastrous impact throughout the sector. We've been through the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. We've been through some very problematic IT conversions. And of course, currently we're going through an unprecedented pandemic. So, you know, we're sophisticated investors and we can handle difficult news. The worst thing for us is when there is silence from the hospital when things are going poorly and when the financials look bad. You know, without any information, the market fears the worst, bond spreads widen out considerably, and we're left wondering what's going on. So the key things that we would really like to know are what challenges you're facing, whether they're sector-wide challenges or things specific to your facility or your market, what are the financial impacts or expected financial impacts of these challenges, what steps you're taking to address them, and your expectations for recovery, and then provide us status updates as you work through these issues. Again, there's nothing we can't handle as long as we're kept in the information loop. And as long as we feel like, again, we're your partners, we're part of the information flow, we can become much more comfortable than if we had lingering questions that weren't being answered. That is very helpful. And we appreciate your time today. Don't go away. We may be Okay, catching. thank you. Now I'd like to turn to David Cates for a few minutes to get your perspective as bond counsel on appropriate disclosure. Let's talk about what talking to the market means. For municipal securities used to finance projects for hospitals and health systems, can you give us a brief overview of what laws govern the disclosure of information to investors? Certainly, Ron, and, and thank you again very much for having me. Really excited about this panel and discussion. The federal securities laws, in short, are the laws that, for the most part, there are some state laws, but for the most part, the federal securities laws govern any time a borrower, such as a, ho a hospital or health system, is going to speak to the market. There are two primary acts, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. I'll get in a little more detail on those. But the Securities Act of 1933, in essence, govern, they both govern any security that is issued. And the bonds that hospitals and health systems, at least the nonprofit ones, typically issue are tax-exempt bonds or have issued on their behalf are tax-exempt bonds. And a bond is a security under both of those acts. The good news is that municipal securities, which those nonprofit bonds are, are uh, exempt from registration under the, the 33 Act, and therefore we don't have to go through the whole registration process with the SEC, which is a, a huge pain and a, a good thing to avoid. However, municipal securities, even though exempt from registration, are subject to the anti-fraud provisions of both the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Act of 1934. The 33 Act is it basically governs the issuance of securities. So anytime you are 
talking to the market as a part of the issuance, then the anti-fraud provisions of that act apply. The 34 Act governs the secondary markets and disclosures which are made to the market sort of post-issuance, anything else involved in the post-issuance communications. Both of those acts prohibit issuers and borrowers like hospitals from making untrue statements of material facts or omitting to state material facts in the connection with the issuance or information disclosed with respect to securities. And that's going to be an overarching theme here because you do need to be careful when talking to the market in in any instance. To further govern the municipal securities industry, the SEC created the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, MSRB for short, and it is promulgated Rule 15C to 12, which most people probably have heard of, that requires that issuers and borrowers to provide continuing ongoing disclosure to investors on an ongoing basis following the issuance of municipal securities. I won't get into how that rule came to be, but you know the SEC doesn't govern health systems directly, and therefore, or, or municipal issuers that, in that regard at all. And so they had to require the bank investment bankers, who they do regulate, to enter into continuing disclosure agreements with the borrower or municipal entity that is uh, behind this, the municipal securities that are are being offered. So that's what is done in Rule 15C212. That continuing disclosure agreement is uh, supposed to require that the borrowers supply annual financial and operating information, as well as notices of the occurrence of certain events on the MSRB's EMA website. I won't get into exactly (laughs) that full acronym, but on the EMA website, everyone knows it as EMA. And of course, as as I alluded to earlier, the information that is supplied pursuant to Rule 15C212 is governed by the anti-fraud provisions of the 1934 Acts. In other words, it can't contain untrue statements of material facts or or omit to state material facts. And when putting together all that type of ongoing disclosure to the market, that needs to be uh, kept in mind and an overriding factor. I understand how the legal landscape you described applies to regular disclosure of financial and operating information on EMMA, but how does it apply to situations outside the normal course? like health systems who are starting to experience financial difficulties caused by COVID-19 or some other external events? The bottom line is the same rules apply that I had previously described when it comes to disclosing information to the the market. The disclosure just can't include material misstatements or omit material facts, even if it's in the the non-regular course of your disclosure. You know, the Rule 15C212, which I mentioned prior, does include 15 events, as I'm sure most folks are familiar with, that many of which will relate to financial troubles. So when those events occur, you are required within 10 business days to notify the market and, and have a disclosure on them. Uh, many of those do relate to financial disclosures, such as you know failure to pay principal and interest on bonds, draws on debt reserve funds, or the use of credit facilities to due to financial difficulties. And in the worst case, when, when there's a bankruptcy involved, you're supposed to disclose that as well. We're not, thankfully, there for most, uh, <laughs> for any of my clients, anyway, and as far as I know in the industry, where we're that dire that we're hitting any of those real material events. But as you noted, we're, you know, we're in a pandemic, COVID-19. There's a lot of pressure from investors and, and others in the industry to make some disclosures, to let the market know what's going on with the hospital system in this pandemic. And that's really where the more interesting questions arise because a lot of my clients, a lot of hospitals in general, have been asking to make 
voluntary disclosures of these events when they've occurred, you know, just when the hospital system maybe is seeing signs of trouble ahead or the like. And that requires even more care because, frankly, it is possible to create a duty to disclose or to update your disclosures. So if you put together a nice bit on COVID-19, for example, and you go into a lot of detail about what's going on and, and how it's occurring, the pandemic, frankly, maybe not as much now or maybe even more so come as the fall wears on, but in the spring, for sure, things were changing very, very quickly. And if you create a duty to update, then you are going to have the potential to omit information going forward by not updating that disclosure that you've given to the market. So there are lots of uh, health systems that did give COVID-19 updates in their voluntary disclosures, and you just have to do so in a very, very careful way. I would advise thinking about giving those disclosures as part of your annual or quarterly information that you're disclosing to the market, because that hopefully doesn't create a duty to update that. You're just explaining the situation as you do every time. And the issues that arise there are even more acute if you if you don't mention you know COVID nineteen and what's going on uh, financially at the health system because it's, you know you might have had a a great quarter or you know the, the you know the June thirty numbers for example are looking great or the September thirty numbers were pretty good but we know things have changed with regard to COVID nineteen in the fall and we're back to postponing elective procedures and so forth and you know October and November for example are really uh, poor months. You know, the financials have taken a dip and so you can't understand what's going on with regard to the September 30 numbers or the June 30 numbers unless you have further disclosure about the subsequent months. The SEC actually came out, the SEC chairman and director of the Office of Municipal Securities with a statement encouraging the participants in the municipal securities market to not just post those June 30 or September 30 numbers, or back then it was, you know, the March and March numbers without explaining what's happened subsequent to those numbers, because a lot of those numbers look rosy and you are potentially misleading the market and having investors trade their securities based on on rosy information when when it's taken a a 180 or a significant dip. I I won't get into too much detail on that because I do think I'm, I'm running out of time, but listen to the master class that we put together. There is a lot more information on that released by the SEC and what and how you can handle disclosure going forward when you anticipate problems like like the COVID-19 pandemic. Great. Very, very good, David. Thank you very much. And we really appreciate your time. And again, don't go away. We may be back to you. <laughs> Thanks. I'll try not to. All right. So let's transition to at a different role in this process, working between the investor community and hospitals in crisis. Gordon Gindler from UMB Bank. Gordon, thanks for joining us and welcome. I think many may not actually understand the exact role and responsibility of the bond trustee. Would you please describe that role in relation to the following three points? First, the goal and purpose of the trustee. Second, a hospital approaching a financial crisis or having just experienced a material negative financial event, and third, a hospital in technical or actual default? Sure. The trustee is the party on the bondholder side, right? Most of the indentures will read that the trustee is the trustee for the benefit of the bondholders. And so 
UMB or any other trustee is a trustee for the life of the deal. Unlike investors, we can't change our mind and leave. We're in until, unless and until we find a replacement trustee. So the trustee is in for the life of the deal. And before pre-default, pre-distress, all the duties are ministerial. You get money in, you pay money out, you make sure you have the appropriate documents when you're supposed to have them, and you exercise zero discretion, basically. And you make sure that the deal functions as it's supposed to. When some distress comes, the trustee's duties change. Again, it will depend on the terms of the indenture, of course. But most indentures have something that suddenly changes the trustee's role from one of an administrator to one that has contractual duties that look like those of a, of a fiduciary and may even in some instances call the trustee a fiduciary for the bondholders. So that is something we, we take seriously and we are in that. The goal and purpose is you know, to make sure that the parties are talking, that things are happening as and when they're supposed to, and that we're doing the best we can for the bondholders while working with the hospital as well. When a hospital is approaching a financial crisis or has just had some sort of negative event, that's really the time to start talking. My job is described as a workout person. And it, this is the point at which I think that's the most true, where things can still be worked out. Like something has happened and the question becomes, what can we do? The best thing I think the hospital can do at that point is start communicating with its bondholders. I just recently got a call from someone said, we're, we're going to miss our next covenant. I don't want this to surprise anybody. What should I do? I encourage them to post a public call, post the notice on Emma so that nobody's getting information that's not material, not public, excuse me, maybe material, public information. And that to let people know what is going on. It is always people's imaginations are worse than the reality a lot of times. So if you won't talk to them, they wonder what, what is going on that's so bad that they can't tell me. So my first approach is usually if, if you're having something, if you know this is coming, if you're going to be disclosing it in a month later, you may as well disclose it now. You may as well start the conversation now. It's a bad start to a conversation to say, I need this from you, and I need it right now, even though you haven't talked. So at that point in time, I think the, the best thing to do is start communicating. If you haven't already been doing it with, with your investor group, let them know what the issue is. Let them know how it came about and what you're doing to correct it. For hospitals in default, and I'll tell you that I don't use the term technical default because indentures don't use that term. There are payment defaults and non-payment defaults. And I think there's a tendency of people to say, well, this is just a technical default. But actually, under the indenture, it's a real live default that gives the same rights and remedies and the same cause as a payment default. Now, people likely will want to handle it in a very different way, but it is a default under the indenture, 
and it is something to be addressed. It probably changes the risk profile of the credit for the holders, and something has to be done. On once we hit that that stage, it's really a time for people to understand that time and money are both short. Invariably, both are precious. So we really want people to be focused on not hiding the ball or game playing or anything like that. But hey, we, we have this much money and this much time. What can be done to address this issue? What can fix it? And, and what, what do we need to do here? Most of the times, I think Marcy brought this up, the, the investors view themselves as long-term partners. They're not looking to blow things up right out of the gate. That is not the first step for investors in most situations. But you need that working relationship. You need that trust. And you, you need to start the relationship and start things going. Great answer. Thanks very much. I appreciate your comment about imaginations going wild. That certainly can happen. From your experience, what would be a good example of a positive working relationship with a hospital finance executive that was facing or involved in the workout process? Again, I think it's I think it's starting to communicate early. I got a call not too long ago from a an executive saying we need a waiver on this. I think we're going to miss a covenant or two. And I had to say, slow down. What what covenants? What happened? I'm not just going to sign a waiver. I mean, that is, you know, I can tell you, you can take that off the table. I'm not just going to waive defaults because you asked me to. I probably won't do it at all, honestly. We're probably more likely a forbearance. But before we go there, we we need to talk. And we spent some time on the on the call. It started out a little hot because he thought I was trying to reject his request and being kind of unreasonable with it. No, you know, we, we have to figure out what's right here. We can't simply do that. And we started talking. We realized we we're probably closer on things than at least he thought at the beginning. We came up with a path, again, getting the, the investors involved, telling them what had happened, how they were addressing, going to address these issues. And at the end, you know, we ended up uh, thanking each other and working through it in a constructive manner. Very much for your time. And again, don't go away. We may have some more yeah. questions. So let's turn to our next panelist, Ian Hamill, about the hospital and crisis process. Ian has been a part of many restructuring or bankruptcy efforts in healthcare. Ian, when a potential or actual financial crisis occurs that puts bonds at risk, what are your thoughts about organizing the right team to resolve the technical or actual default and who should be on that team? Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is it is really great to be here. I am going to spend a few minutes talking from my perspective as a workout attorney in, in the healthcare space and talk about what I see as a really critical issue for any healthcare organization that's facing financial distress or a violation of their loan documents. And my topic here for the next few minutes relates to collecting the right team to address the situation. So what I'm gonna do here is start with the takeaway point that I want to get across to the audience today. The outcome for an organization that is facing distress and for the lenders may depend a lot 
on having the right team at the table. The right team needs to have the right players on the healthcare organization side. And I would also say there needs to be a good team on the lender side as well. So I spend a lot of my professional life across the table from hospital executives. And I chose this theme because we too often come into a healthcare distress situation and we find significant gaps. So too often we find organizations that try to lead with the business team. There are no professionals in sight. Other times uh, an organization will bring professionals, but the professionals they select are from their current roster of existing trusted advisors. And the talents of the management team and the talents of the existing trusted advisors may really have limited relevance to the workout dynamic. So as some actual examples, I've landed across from counsel that specializes in healthcare compliance, uh, counsel that specialize in real estate or that provide corporate counsel. Uh, I've even landed across from underwriting teams that had helped place the organization's funded debt in the first place. It is extremely, extremely important to have someone guiding the organization under these circumstances that has an understanding of the workout process, someone that may be able to help the organization focus on its realistic priorities, and someone that has a reputation for being able to get a troubled organization out of default and into some more stable resolution. Now, I wanted to spend a really quick moment on why I'm raising these issues. And I guess I'd put it this way. If one of my borrowers does not have the right team on its side, the process is going to drift without resolution. That hurts everyone. If the organization doesn't have the right team, time that could be used to stabilize or remedy a situation or mitigate a loss may be wasted while the organization fumbles its way through the rhythm and through the steps that are typical in a workout process. I'd also say that an organization in distress may need to take a hard look at what the organization should look like and go forward. And in a distress situation, an organization's view about what it should be needs to match up with what the organization can be given its existing and its anticipated resources. The existing management, the existing trusted advisors may find it difficult to consider these broader pictures. Now, I don't mean to come across too gloomy. I've seen plenty of situations where the issues are transient. They can be cured. They are cured. After a period of workout, the credit returns to full performance. But the organization needs to have professionals to help determine whether the issues really are transient or if we're dealing with a more serious situation. There are some right team issues on the lender side as well that I wanted to bring forward in my remarks today. So my comments here are particularly relevant in situations where there's bond debt. A successful outcome is going to require the right indenture trustee that can help drive the process. And there's often no attention directed to the choice of indenture trustee. There is, however, a wide spectrum of experience between corporate trustee shops when workout is needed. There is a wide spectrum among corporate trustee shops and their willingness to work towards a practical solution. An effective resolution of a default requires two proactive participants. If you have an indentured trustee that's not experienced, if you have an indentured trustee that does not have a reputation for being proactive, the organization is going to have trouble getting to a solution. You may need to evaluate as an organization whether you have the right indentured trustee or whether you need to change them in order to move the process forward.
Now, I don't want this to turn into a complete advertisement for for Gordon, who you heard heard from a, a few minutes ago, or his colleagues. But I have worked with Gordon. I have worked with his organization on many, many occasions. And I can assure you that Gordon and his colleagues consistently deliver the sort of attributes that I'm talking about here. Gordon, by the way, did not know that compliment was coming. And just a reminder, Gordon, I accept MasterCard coffee, beer, and uh, pal sessions at Twins games when the pandemic is over. Just make sure the facilitator gets a portion. Of course, of course. All kidding aside, though, folks, you've got to have a good trustee. And if you don't, you're likely to flail in your effort to uh, move the process along. That's a consistently overlooked issue. And if you take nothing else from my comments today, please consider this one. So let me just be mindful here that uh, we've got a great speaker coming up for our anchor leg. If you want to talk to me a little bit further about some of these issues, uh, the hosts at Warburg will be putting up my contact information, and I'd be, be delighted to hear from anyone that's listening in this afternoon. I do want to make sure that we're not shortchanging your time with Rob Yoland. Rob and I have been in the trenches before, and I anticipate that giving him time for his comments is going to be a great way to cap off this panel. So I'll end by by thanking the Warbird team for putting a group of real all-stars together this afternoon. And I've picked up an idea or two myself already this afternoon that I'm going to steal and, and put in the toolbox as we move forward. Thank you very much. Ian, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate your advice. And again, don't go away. We may be back to you. As we near the end of this webinar, I'd like to circle back to a major bond investor, Rob Yolen from Franklin Templeton. Rob, would you please describe your expectations for a relationship with a hospital that has experienced a technical or actual default? We'll do. Thank you very much for having me, Ron. And uh, thank you, Ian, for those kind words. I want to echo all that Marcy said. Honest and open communication with bondholders is the best policy, I think. When you do have a problem, it comes down to explaining to bondholders what happened, why did it happen, and what are you doing about it? Do you have a plan? With the technical or actual default, we think an industry call is best. Send out an EMA notice, contact your consultant or investment banker, hold an industry call. Technical defaults can generally be cured by hiring a consultant. I think it's best to have a call with a turnaround consultant and management of the line. We generally recommend transitioning from an, to quarterly calls during that time period from an annual call, if that's what you're doing before. But during this time of stress, quarterly calls we think are best. With an actual default, a missed payment, uh, that's when we start assembling a team that Ian referenced. You know, We start talking to the trustee. We help to hire counsel hiring appropriate workout professionals. We're generally looking for the trustee and looking at all possible solutions. There is a fear that during this time of stress that management teams will stop communicating with bondholders. And we think, if anything, you should increase communication with bondholders. And we think it's best to lean on your investors. We can help. Many of us have years of experience in a network of professionals that can be very helpful in a crisis. We've been through many credit cycles, including covenant violations, distress, payment defaults, bankruptcies. Pandemics are new, but the options to deal with those problems are not new. Rob, for that insight, we appreciate that. Uh, given the financial impacts of the pandemic on hospitals, how can hospitals best work themselves out of the problem? 
I'd say it starts with an honest and open assessment. You know, generally hiring a consultant is the best way to go. Have an additional set of eyes, review your plans, and then communicate with bondholders. Set up an industry call. I think that's best practices. Hold quarterly calls. I think actually if you can have an investor meeting, I know during the pandemic and during this crisis, there will not be in-person investor meetings, but I think that's extremely valuable as well. But hold quarterly calls and issue financial statements with a thorough MD&A. Excellent. Good insight. Would you also please outline your expectations for open and direct communications with investors? Yeah. I think under normal circumstances, quarterly financial statements with it, we get quarterly financial statements, annual audits with balance sheet income statement cash flows on those quarterly statements, utilization stats, pair mixed information, physician info, market share info, I think are best practices, a thorough MDNA that outlines reasons for increases and decreases are excellent. 90% of our conversations are one-on-one with management teams, not industry calls, but just calls with myself and the CFO generally. I'll call and email a schedule a call, and it's generally free form. We talk about general updates, what's happened from the prior year when I spoke to them the year previous. We focus on strategic plans, their financial results, upcoming capital projects. COVID has added a, a, you know, a reason for greater detail, and so we do need in the MDNA kind of what you received in CARES Act funds. How much have you received during different time periods of the CARES Act funds, I think is helpful. Medicare advanced payments, what are those? Any increase in lines of credits or draws on those lines of credits? Bank covenants and tests that may differ from my MTI. Utilization on a monthly basis, I think, is best practices right now, too. And that's mostly through COVID. We want to see admissions, observations, inpatient surgeries, outpatient surgeries, ED visits, urgent care visits, net patient revenues. Anything like that is helpful so we can see the trough in March and as it picked up back through June. And every geography is different. So we're seeing different spikes in different areas. And that's helpful to see on a hospital by hospital basis because we don't have, we own a lot of different credits. We read the local newspapers when we can, but we just don't have the information that you guys can provide to us. And then how are you dealing with that? Are you with furloughs, reduced travel, conversion to telehealth? How did that go? Cuts in capital, the budgets versus forecasts are extremely helpful. All of that is really helpful for us. So I think if you could put yourself in the shoes of an investor and say, what would an investor want to know? I mean, you guys have large portfolios. You try to keep track of the investments you make. We're looking for the same type of thing. But most importantly, keep the dialogue open. And many of our largest holdings, we have very good relationship with management. And there's a reason for that. Thank you, Rob. That was very helpful. And thank you for your insight and your time today. Please don't go away. We may have some additional questions towards the end here. We've got a few minutes left, and I'd like to do some quick lightning round of questions uh, for each of our panelists. Uh, If you could keep the answers to less than a minute, uh, actually, we have some additional time. So let's start with Marcy. What would you like to see contained in a routine communication that is different from... Well, quite frankly, there's really nothing significant that we would like to see that's different from what's contained in most rating agency reports. But what we would like to have is access to the same information as the rating agencies. Very often, a hospital provides budgets, projections, or capital spending and debt plans to the rating agencies, and this information has not been made public to the bondholders. And it really doesn't make sense to me that a rating agency should have more information 
than the investors that have real skin in the game and have collectively loaned the hospital perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're not asking for any special treatment, but we certainly want to be treated equally. David, if a borrower provides information to the market that is extra and not Rule 15C-12, what are the borrower's disclosure obligations going forward? The information is you know, material and non-public, then uh, we would recommend that the borrower go ahead and, and post that information on, on EMMA so that you don't have a selective disclosure situation. I'm pretty sure the, uh, actually, as was mentioned before, the you know investors don't want to have material non-public information that does restrict their ability to trade with regard to the security. So it's in everyone's best interest, both sides, investors and borrowers, to go ahead, if you've given material non-public information to one investor in a call or whatnot, to go ahead and post that on Emma so uh, all the world can have it as well. Uh, Gordon, how can a trustee help a hospital get through a financial crisis and or a covenant violation without activating the most severe portions of the workout provisions in the bond indenture? Yes, first of all, we're usually not looking to activate the most severe provisions of the bond indenture. Those are, they're costly and it's usually not your best return for the investor. So at this point um, in time, we're probably working together and it is sort of an understanding that, yeah, we, we may not see the world exactly the same, but we both want the hospital to succeed. So we'll be asking for things like maybe maybe a consultant, maybe those sorts of things. And I think it's time to try and work together at the beginning to listen to what those requests are, to say yes when you when you can, to not be defensive, and to work together to provide the information. Sometimes it's hard, right? This is a very busy time for the hospitals, and we're asking them for a little bit more. I, I get that, but um, and I will talk to people about ways we can help and ways we can do that. But it is the information that the investors are asking for and the trustees asking for. It's probably necessary getting something done short of the big event that people are, that no one really wants. Ian, what would you advise our listeners not to do when assembling their team to assist with a technical or actual default situation? I'm going to give you two quick answers on it. The first one relates to the selection of whoever is going to lead the process can't emphasize enough. It's not a good idea to hire a bulldozer. Any organization in distress obviously needs someone who's going to be a good steward of the organization's legacy and its priorities and its interests. Uh, but it's also really important to try to find somebody, however good of a steward they are, and even if they can be tough and firm, that actually knows how to move the process along to a long-term permanent solution. I've been doing this a long time. I've seen a lot of different styles. I've seen the bulldozers. They often gain ground in the early days, uh, but they wind up uh, leading us through a process that winds up leading to a worse result at higher cost uh, and taking a longer period of time. So choose your advocates wisely, not suggesting that you want to cut your row short and, and hire someone who's not up to the job but I think it's really important to be thoughtful in that respect. The other thing that I would mention is I'd like to, to focus on another particular member of the team that, that's often considered, and that's the financial or the 
operational consultant. So a lot of hospital bonds have a consultant call in say when there's a covenant violation. Many of the better documents call for some input enter trustee, but that's not always the case. And I think we've all, of course, seen plenty of instances where an organization is encountering some level of distress and they go ahead and retain a consultant, even if they're not technically required to do so as part of an effort to help the organization and to calm the waters. An organization really ought to consider consulting with their trustee before they retain a consultant, and they should do so in most cases, regardless of whether they are required to by the terms of their documents. A lot of this goes back to some of the, the team building comments that you heard from some of the other commentators. And a lot of this just comes from the basic practical needs and the purposes for retaining a consultant. Ultimately, the hospital is looking for someone to help them. One of the best ways that a consultant can help them is by uh, bringing somebody on that's going to calm the waters, is going to convince the trustee and the bondholders that the hospital is taking the matter seriously and that it has the matter under control. If an organization barges forward and hires a consultant without any consultation, it's entirely possible they might make a good choice. It's also entirely possible that in addition to getting off on the wrong foot, when you're entering a situation when you may be asking bondholders for patience, for forgiveness, or for some kind of other relief, it's uh, also a situation where you could bring somebody forward that's not going to command the respect or the comfort from the bondholders, and you're just going to uh, engage in a process that's wasteful in terms of time, runway, dollars, and is otherwise unproductive. Thanks, Ian, for your insight. Rob? From your years of experience in credit surveillance and without using any names, please give our audience an example of an excellent relationship that you have had with a hospital or health system and why it was excellent. Yeah, there are a few different systems and hospitals that we have that we have, you know, quarterly calls with. They have a very solid MDNA. They are very thorough in their presentation on a quarterly basis. And then they are very willing to meet with us on a on a one-off basis. And I think those one-on-one meetings are invaluable. And actually, I like the in-person meetings best if we can do it, but those one-on-one meetings are invaluable where we can sit down with management and they answer all of our questions specifically as opposed to, you know, you're in a queue and you get to ask one question and then you wait to ask a second. Those one-on-one meetings, I think are really valuable. And so I would encourage everybody to meet with their investors as they can on a one-on-one basis. I love doing site visits. I love to sit down with the management team, see their facilities, see what the bond proceeds were used for. And I think in this environment, those honest and open communications have really made a big difference in our willingness to continue to hold bonds through turmoil. So I would say, you know, continue to communicate. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate your insights. I wonder if we can go back to David. David, are you still there? Uh, Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Would you mind answering one more question that we didn't have time with before? Oh, sure. Happy to do it. So many of our listeners probably received direct phone calls from investors with questions relating to the hospital or health system's current performance, especially when something such as COVID-19 is affecting the entire industry. Are borrowers allowed to talk to investors when they call, especially if they're calling about information 
directly or indirectly related to what's been posted to Emma. In effect, what should a borrower do when an investor calls? Sure. So borrowers certainly are allowed to talk to investors when they call, and it, it does happen frequently. However, there is the risk of talking to investors individually and providing them either selective disclosure, as we, we talked about earlier, or making some you know, misrepresentations in the conversation. So it is very important, we believe, I believe, to take a few precautions and put in some protocols when it comes to talking to investors. Number one, uh, whenever an investor calls, we I think that you should have one designated person who's sort of the investor relations individual that will talk to an investor when they call. That person should have an understanding of the, the what you should and shouldn't do and, and how to handle those types of conversations. It could be anyone within your organization. Sometimes it's a CFO or a treasurer or, or a designated compliance person. But that's very important to have those protocols in place and have have an understanding of what you should say and shouldn't say. The key here, though, is to keep yourself within a, a conversation that is either in the public already or, or, if you will, very close to, to public information so that you're not giving away any material non-public information. So stick to the disclosures you've made either annually or quarterly when, when talking to an investor. A lot of times that is hard. And what happens is an investor asks you a question that would elicit material non-public information. And sometimes several investor, investors will ask the same question. So you know it's important to the market if you feel you can disclose that that material non-public information, the right way to do it is not to tell that individual investor on a phone call the information. It's to let the investor know, you know what, that's a great question. It's been asked by other investors. We are putting together a posting on Emma, and we will, we will make that information available to all investors. As I mentioned before, that's good not only for the organization, because then you can, you can vet the information, you can make sure the disclosure is proper and and fulsome, but you also don't supply uh, non-public information and to the investor who doesn't really want that, frankly, because if it's material non-public information, then, then they might be restricted from trading themselves. So it's a win-win and very important, I believe, to, to handle that exactly that way. Excellent. Uh, thanks, David. We appreciate you taking that extra question. Let's move on because we're reaching the end of our time today. I'd like to turn the conversation back to our MC, Jim Gravel, for a few final thoughts and announcements. Jim? Well, thank you, Ron. I appreciate your leading out in this conversation today. Just a great job. I want to extend my gratitude also to the panelists that were involved in the discussion today. Thanks to each of you for the thoughtful answers you had. As I mentioned earlier, I wish I had access to this kind of information back in 08 when we had, as I learned today, not a technical default, but a non-payment default. Thank you for that clarification. I am confident that our listeners also benefit from this conversation today, and some of our participants, panelists, even said they learned some things from one another in this interaction, and the insights, the thoughts, and suggestions. And I'm sure our listeners will take these ideas back to their home hospitals and their systems, and everyone will advantage when they manage their debts and deal with issues of crisis right now. If you'd like to hear more from each of our panelists, please take advantage of our masterclass sessions. These sessions are non, are on demand, and uh, they last about 30 to 40 minutes. And they'll be packed with insights, examples, cautionary tales, and success stories, and expand in areas that we didn't have time to cover here today. Each expert will provide you actions that you can take to address the issues that may be impacting your financial viability. 
To access these, they're complimentary, and you just go to Warbird's website and use the Contact Us option to request that. If you have any questions or want to learn more from any of the panelists, we encourage you to reach out to them individually. Their contact information is available at the end of the presentation. This concludes our session. On behalf of the panelists and the Warbird Financial Advisory and Debt Management team, we so appreciate your listening. Thank you for joining this special event provided to you as part of the Warbird Consulting Partners Educational Series for Hospitals and Health Systems. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations with the Marketplace. If you have any questions about this topic, suggestions for a future podcast, or questions in general, please email us at jbain at warbirdcp.com. That's J-B-E-H-N at W-A-R-B-I-R-D-C-P dot com. Our goal is to provide content that is meaningful and represents your needs. Please visit our website at www.warbirdconsulting.com, where you can contact us directly, receive industry updates, and gain access to on-demand webinars. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and leave us a five-star review. We hope this podcast provided new perspectives and most importantly, prompts you to take action. We want Conversations with the Marketplace to be your go-to healthcare financial management podcast. Please come back soon and join us for another episode in our educational series for hospitals and hospital systems. Until then, stay well, be entrepreneurial, and take action.